Welcome to NFT Tales, our podcast about us talking about NFTs. Uh, my name is Jonathan Smith. And I'm Jeremy Craig. And this is our fourth episode of the podcast titled Christmas Trees and NFTs. For today's episode, well, we're going to talk about some NFTs, some recent NFT news, try to be topical. And then we're just going to kind of get into some big questions around NFTs uh, that I'm sure people are going to be discussing with their family during the holidays. I don't know, Jeremy. I'm always excited about talking about families with NFTs. How about yourself? Oh, yeah. I can't tell if they're looking at me like I'm a weirdo or just completely mesmerized by the foreign language that they think I'm speaking. Okay. Before we continue, though, I have a correction I need to make on last uh, episode. In the last episode, I talked about how Van Halen would ask for a bowl of brown M&Ms. I was wrong. I remembered that wrong. It's the opposite. They ask for a bowl with all the brown M&Ms pulled out. That's on me. I got to get my hair metal band trivia right, or this whole thing isn't worth doing. So a little minor correction there. So after that, let's go ahead and get into the news. All right, Jeremy? Okay, Jeremy, let's try to be topical. Let's talk about some NFT current events. What have you seen recently that you want to talk about? Oh, man. So, you know, I've got to start with Flow. Um, I've got to start with my Top Shot network. So, uh, the Sousa Bulls came out in open beta. They're no longer closed beta, so that's good. Um, they minted Flow Vitars, which was their, their newest PFP series. I know I've been talking to you about that a few times and sent you that coach I made. Yeah, you got that team going, right? A whole team on Flow Vitar, right? Yeah, I don't think I sent you what I did today, but I went ahead and made um, my two kids one as well. So um, now I've got four basketball players and that crazy looking coach, dude. And, um, and now you've minted on yet another blockchain. I mean, that's that's a tick on the awards. But anyway, keep going. Yeah, that was quite a, uh, a fun time learning how to get flow on to do that minting. Um, but then Top Shot also announced Rake Back, you know, in the spirit of the holiday season and giving. So we got 5% of our net market spend back, which was awesome. A lot of people did a lot of uh, set and completion series stuff. So that, that was a good amount of money. I know some people were getting, you know, $100,000 or more at a time. So Quite a few people um, in that community were doing different donations and raffles on their Twitter account. You know, that was smart. I got to say, one thing you got to talk about Dapper Labs. So we talk about projects and you go to project website, there's a team. But at the end of the day, Dapper Labs is the team behind Top Shots, right? And everything related to what they do. Mm-hmm. And they're just a real smart team. They The roadmap is kind of put together and they kind of have this thing where they know how to manage the community. They try not to let things get too hot. They try not to let things get too cold. I think things are getting getting cold lately, and so they just injected some money to try to kind of get it going again. And I don't know. I just think that they're a real smart organization. They really know what they're doing. I think that's something that bodes well for the future of Top Shots. Or you know what I'm excited about? Let's talk about what I'm excited about. Ballers. Ballers. Well, probably NFL all day, too. But I yeah, have to throw too, ballers but... in there. No, we got to do ballers. I just uh, just made me uh, some stuff for the NFL cards off the uh, selling a baller today. Still got my favorite baller. There will be a story about a baller. Not in this episode. 
uh, Jeremy actually is going to have a, a story that I wrote about uh, our crypto or my, my crypto dad. So hopefully y'all enjoy that big crypto dad fan. I was always going to do one of those tours, like a personal hit home, you know? Oh but, yeah. The OG uh, line, the OG line. I know you didn't, you had to read that one. That's your favorite NFT, right? So you had to, had to have at it, your favorite project. But anyway, back to the ballers, excited about ballers. I'm so excited that something that is this real utility as like a social media type platform, representation is finally getting out there and is finally having that kind of traction. It's almost like the second layer effect where you have the top shots and now you have this NFT to represent your account on top shots. Makes me think, what would I pay for something like, hey, Microsoft, let me buy something off the blockchain to represent my Xbox account or my PlayStation account or something like that. Like there's these accounts that we associate with a lot. And I like Yoshi, but I wish I could have my own NFT on my Nintendo account or something like that, right? To really push myself out there. And Ballers allows that for Top Shots. It's a secondary effect. It gives you this extra thing. You know, during the holidays to talk about friends and family that are like, okay, do you understand Top Shots? Okay, here's this next step. It's like, you know... NFT training wheels or something like that. I really like them being an on-ramp to the whole NFT experience. So. Always. And they capitalized on that pixelated movement that's you know going through. As a matter of fact, you mentioned Crypto Dads and it being my favorite series. That part of their big piece of news this week was they got that energy drink going. So there they go. actually sent some samples out to some of the dads that were on the, the taste test list. And I think that's going to be going into distribution. I think they're, they're ramping up the whiskey and the beer. So we're about to have a lot of crypto dad stuff out on the market. Um, uh, you can't say taste test without me thinking about the Pepsi project and how high that floor went up and how many people jumped on that. I, you know, I was dismissive of that. Thinking that these corporate ca- cash grabs, they can't, I mean, it, it, it's for attention. They weren't trying to really make money. It was for the attention of it and all that, right? Like trying to pitch their name to, but, you know, they were early mover. They were smart about it. And those things ended up being worth a lot, you know, despite it was all a whitelist type battle. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty impressed by that project. Uh, or, or like Adidas, how they just made a mint off NFTs, right? By tying them to actual physical shoes. So See, I and I didn't. Good. I didn't look into the Pepsi one as much as I did Adidas, but I know that Adidas made $23 million on just the NFT drop alone. And it went off rather well. You know, they, they had a little bit of a hiccup, and they paused the minting, and, and some people lost gas. And they came back out and said, you know, we're, we're learning in this environment as well. Um, anybody that lost gas, send us your transactions, and we'll refund you the money. But, yeah, it, it sold out. And, you know, it. the people that got it love it. The people that didn't, you know, of course, are trying to throw some FUD and saying, well, y'all are paying $400 for a tracksuit that you used to be able to get for 80 But it is that representation in the, in the metaverse and digital world that people are looking for. They, you know, they brought out a, is it a Bay Area Yacht Club? Yeah, that had the tracksuit on, the Adidas hoodie on. I mean, Yeah, it's, that got a lot of people excited for sure. Oh, um, yeah. And, you know, it's just, it's obvious to be cynical in this space and you have to come to the right audience. I think shoe fans were a natural audience, you know, sneaker fans were a natural audience for something like an NFT. You're talking about like a bad audience. So Ubisoft tried to roll out their new Mm -hmm. NFT platform and it was a huge failure. And a a lot of people are pointing to that as a sign, you know, problems at Ubisoft because they have had a lot of problems lately, problems with NFTs. You know what I think it is that it's just the market. Like, gamers don't like NFTs. I spend some of my time on a gamer, I guess you could say. I mean, I, I don't like that label sometimes and what it's associated with. But, you know, I have, like, a PlayStation 5 and a Switch. 
and tons of games and blah, blah, blah. I play a freaking lot of games. And so I go to gamer like spaces like Reset Era and Gamer Subs and all that Reddit. Mm-hmm. And they really don't like NFTs. And I think part of it is they don't like blockchain in general because blockchain has been chewing up graphic cards for like half of their lifetime. Mm-hmm. And they're sick of competing with Ethereum or Bitcoin mining for getting the newest uh, GPU or they or even like a consoles are hard to find because just that that silicon production is getting eaten up. Right. And I think another part of it is gamers are really savvy about a digital world. They're really cynical about what gaming companies are willing to give up actually to a blockchain space. And so they're not that, you know, they don't think there's much there. I mean, if companies were willing to, say, put digital games in the blockchain or ownership of them and make it so you could, like, actually sell a digital game, gamers would be all over it. It'd be huge. But just, like, tying in an NFT that doesn't really have any utility outside of the universe of the thing, which really was all that any, you know, game digital purchase was then there's not that added value and you're not coming to an audience that cares or is going to be receptive to it. So I think you have to go to audiences that'll be receptive. I think you have to come at that audience with something that they care about, like the Adidas coming to them with actual merchandise, like how Top Shots honestly comes to us with NBA players and that notoriety and all that and that style and flair that they have coming with it. And if you're not willing to do that in this space and you're coming from that corporate side, I, I just don't think that there's much in it for you, you know. But I could be wrong about that. I'm not like a social media manager for a corporate big, you know, Fortune 50 or something company. It just seems obvious that a lot of them are trying to lean in. And I think the level of success is going to come down to how much they're actually trying to connect to the market, yeah, which I think that's where the Pepsi thing succeeded, being on OpenSea, being mm-hmm. really direct, you know, doing a mint, I do it straight up. And then where is that actual utility going to come for me? You know, if you're going to ask me to pay for something, I better get something out of it in the long run. And uh, people are savvy to that, you, especially a younger audience. You got to be careful there. So, well, just before we switch subjects to go in on that, like you said, the you know response from the gamers was um, less than favorable. The the stuff that I read said it got like thirty thousand downvotes in a matter of like a few hours, and so it was not just you know taken you know. With a grain of salt, it was outright just a fire response. They hated it. So, I, yeah, I oh, agree I've with seen people you said. like extrapolate their press statements backwards and like they made a couple hundred bucks or something. Like, I made more <laughs> off ballers today. And you're laughing. I probably made off more of ballers today than Ubisoft made off NFTs. It's pathetic. But at the end of the day, doesn't matter because there's other gaming companies coming to it. Like, Squaresoft is going to come out with NFTs. I want to see some real value there, you know? I think there's something cool that could be done with gaming in the NFT space. If I could own my digital avatar, as I was talking about, between accounts, or what I would like, if I could own, like, my me from Nintendo and, like, no other person can have Mario Kart. No, you do not want to know how much ETH I'd be bidding for, like, no one else can look like me in Mario Kart or something. I think that that's something that's going to naturally come. And then having transfer rights and all that for that kind of real estate, you know, NFTs are an obvious way to do it, but we'll see. Let's take a break real quick. And when we get back, let's actually talk about some of these big questions like that that people always ask us related to NFTs as we get into the holidays and we're going to hear from them, friends and family, right? So we'll be back in just a minute. Okay, Jeremy, let's do the big one. Why would I pay for an NFT when I can just right-click save as the image, huh? Oh, the the fun conversations we've had with that one. Uh, typically, you know, it requires me to smile because it's a little frustrating. But, you know, I always start off with 
Um, I've seen the Mona Lisa. I took pictures of, you know, things in the Louvre. To, can I reprint that and sell it as the Mona Lisa and make money on it? And they kind of look at me. Um, can I go online and look at a picture of the Mona Lisa and right click that and save it and, you know, redistribute it and make money on it? And they're like, well, no. Um, so I tell them immediately, you know, I, you're not owning anything. My ownership of this NFT is, is backed by the blockchain. And then that usually kind of gets us to go down that rabbit hole. And well, what is the blockchain? I, and I hear what you're saying. And honestly, that's why I love seeing media rights on a project. You know me, I don't really like to invest unless I can see media rights on a project. I think it's an important thing. I talked about the last episodes, but it's just a good way to explain it to normal people. Like you go to people, you're like, what you're saying, like, can I use, if someone used that, do they have to pay me or whatever? Well, no, you know, and they get that concept. Everyone gets media rights, but we know they're not actually tied together. We know the real answer is why you don't get right click save as, and there's scarcity and there's value. And there's this untangible effect of like art and people are willing to pay decent money for some of these digital pieces that have no value. I mean, my toads, I don't even looked at it today, but whatever it is, I mean, don't look, whatever it is, <laughs> I don't, I, let's not do floors and stuff on the show. Uh, it, there's value there that someone's willing to pay for something that is a public domain project, right? That like no one has the copyright to. So it's not always copyright and it's not always one in one. But I'll be damned if I don't go there, too. <laughs> if that isn't just the easiest way to explain to people rights ownership, it's a really convenient logic chain, you know. Mm -hmm. But I think for a lot of people, where I start, honestly, is the fungible versus non-fungible. I talk about something like dollars and how if you have a dollar, every dollar spends the same. And the one that was printed a year ago is the same as one that was printed yesterday and so on, right? And that being a fungible item versus something like how I went, you know, to New York last month and me and my wife, we went to go see some Van Goghs and there was no one else in the room with them. And we tried to go see Starry Night and there was literally like a crowd of people around or whatever. Why is that one worth more than the other Van Goghs? Why aren't every Van Gogh worth like 40 ETH or whatever, right? You know, like, because... The things have different value, in the, and that's non uh, non fungible of the NFT world, and that's where I go with a lot of people to kind of back them in from the art standpoint, rather than coming at the straight value. But in a world where people are seeing others make money, and there's all this money being made, yeah, people are normally like, "What? Okay, what's the money value? I don't understand. I don't get it. If you can just save it and copy a picture, what's the money value, right?" So, I don't know, Jeremy. You have gotten into it more than a lot of people I know. What was the thing that really brought you in originally? You know, I, I would have to say it was the collector's, you know, aspects to it. I really got in for the NBA Top Shot. So I, I looked at it as I was collecting cards. Um, and then NFTs were just the next, you know, artistic step. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. But a lot of people, you know, OpenSea and Ether stuff, they're they're going to be different. Um, that kind of brings me to a question that I wanted to ask you. Okay. It's going to be two-prong, so I'm going to kind of set it up for you. But we, we talked a lot about how corporate America is, you know, cannonballing into the NFT markets. Um, you talked last week about, you know, rights and ownership. Uh, Nike bought Artifact, and they actually mm -hmm. limited the rights of those uh, because they plan on releasing in real life shoes later tied to the different um, NFTs, but they're not giving the ownership of the people who buy the NFTs. They're not giving them full commercial rights. And this week, someone donated NBA.eth back to the NBA that had already purchased it for their own um, self. So it, you know, you're kind of getting 
the corporate aspect where they're retaining rights because they don't like giving up their rights to the average consumer. And then the consumer is, is donating things back to these big corporations. So how do you see that interaction between, you know, the, the average Joe buyer like myself that may have owned NBA.eth and, and, you know, MBA coming in and saying, we want that domain or, or just how do you see that intersection going down? I mean, I'll be honest with you. I don't think anyone gave the NBA uh, that kind of domain that was either A, not already in business with them, or B, was not something like a whale. Like, it, you know, one thing that NFTs are, it, it kind of going back to the last answer, is there's a lot of people that have gotten a lot of crypto in this space, from mining, from years of trading, and they could turn it into millions or whatever it is, but then they're worried about the IRS, they're worried about wild, they just don't want to liquefy that stuff, but they want a use for all their ETH, so to speak. And this kind of thing allows that to be a use. You could buy up that domain, and if you're willing to burn the value on it, maybe you get the NBA more into that world. Maybe they start taking ether. You know what I'm saying? Like that just becomes, or they start promoting that. And then you own a hundred other domains or something like that, that are almost as good. And suddenly, you know, like Amazon.eth is beaten down your door, whatever it is. Like there's, there's one thing that will embolden people on the blockchain is that if Amazon wants mine, <laughs> they're not going to get to a court or something. They're not just going to call some backdoor provider like happened with that person that had the metaverse mm -hmm. account or whatever and just disappears or whatever because Facebook doesn't want you to have it anymore, you know? Like, if they if these companies want these domains, they're going to have to pay for them. And I think it's a lot like we saw, you know, I've talked about this before. I think that domain names in a lot of ways were like the first NFTs. People mm -hmm. picked up some major real estate like buy.com. Uh, baseball cards. Like there's all these dot com rush land rush that happened early on, and then later on, some of them got you know legally moved over because that is a centralized system. But some of them did get purchased, and there was a lot of squatters that run to a space. And every time there's a new coach, blankcoachfire dot com gets taken or whatever, and there's a lot of squatting in that space. And so, I think that concept you know, reflects through. And I think that's where corporate America is going to come in. They're going to want to claim their space and they're used to being able to claim their space. But with the blockchain, they can't actually do it. There's no like authority to say, well, that that Ether domain is obviously Nikes or whatever. So they get it or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. But they can always make the courts go after the people if they can find the people, if they can get it connected back to the real world. And so they can for them to pull the rights back is easy. Because it, you'd have to go into the real world and sue them or something to get those rights away, right? Mm -hmm. Like, the rights themselves that are tied to NFTs, those still rely on real-world concepts. Anything with the blockchain, all a blockchain is, is a ledger that you can trust other people to write, even if you don't trust them. That's really what it comes down to, right? So mm -hmm. anytime whenever it connects to the actual real world, which rights are, if we're talking about something like media rights and distribution rights, then there's no way to be certain that that judge will actually enforce all these like websites or whatever that I'm downloading for my NFTs that write these stories and stuff, right? Like this isn't something that's really proven in the real world until it's so quote unquote proven in a court of law or something. That's just the way life works, you know, but you own blank thing and they won't be able to own blank thing at an essential level unless people get paid. So it's probably a pretty good place to squat into, you know, if, if I was that person and I owned, you know, a couple other major NFL.eth, you know what I'm saying? Maybe it's yeah. worth trying to prime the pump and get that market going. The guy who first got the big crypto bunk sold and kind of started this whole thing earlier in this year knew what he was doing. Yeah, right. Said that, 
you know, if I sell this thing for this big amount of money and make a big deal out of it, then other people see it. I mean, can maybe get the the pump primed and look smart now. I mean, just the way it works out, right? So uh, I'm kind of both ways on that. I'm kind of both ways on that. All right, your turn for a question. So we've seen the NBA going into this space. We've seen the NFL going into this space. We're seeing PGA Tour going into this space. As you said, baseball card and collecting and all that, that's very obvious connection between sports and NFTs. Where's the line? And what do you think is going to work and not as far as what will attract to the audience? Man, I, I think that's... That's a difficult question. I think at this point, you know, they're pushing the boundaries every day. And so the line is um, not established yet. I saw, I want to say a Brazilian soccer league where just one team, not even the entire league, but one team had NFTs. So um, I know, you know, La Liga is coming out and UFC is coming out with the Dapper Labs are on flow again. So it, I don't really think there is a limit in sight right now. I think there's going to be a lot of things that they're going to try that will probably ultimately fail, but um, I think the sky's the limit right now, so we're going to see a lot of a little bit of everything. I mean, you're talking about whole teams, but, I mean, Tom Brady's doing his own NFT. Kronk, remember, did his own NFT, right? And so I think that's kind of part of it is where who owns what. I, you know, the Pulp Fiction, NFTs were sold around Pulp Fiction, and Paramount, the media company, got really mad that these NFTs were being minted and created because they thought that they had the rights to it, right? But, of course, Santino thinks that he has the rights to Pulp Fiction. So some of this stuff is really worked out. Whenever you're talking about corporate things, whenever you're talking about previous pop culture, you know, who owns the right to what is something that's been they've been working on for years and might not be this clean thing. I mean... A board ape yacht club doesn't come after like an ape's moms or something like that on like the legal team side because, A, they're doing so good, we're all going to make it. You know, who cares about going for a derivative, right? Mm-hmm. And, B, there's the thing that if you do that kind of thing, you grant the legitimacy that gives the value that everyone's craving in this market anyway, right? And so I think the corporations don't understand that. They never have understand a Streisand effect. And that's what we might see happening is like the NFTs that get sued. Maybe there'll be one of those that'll pop off and get real big. And maybe that's where the sports leagues kind of got to figure it out because of these individual players want to sell NFTs and then the teams want to sell NFTs and then the leagues want to sell NFTs and they're going to have to go and use their existing contracts in place to figure out who can do what because all this stuff is owned top to bottom, right? When we're talking about intellectual property from one side to the other. All right, speaking about cards, ask me ask me the next question. I, I'm looking forward to this one. Everyone wants to talk about cards. and how Definitely. Go for and it. what it takes to make it and sell it and all that's spent on it. So right now, a lot of the stuff that you're going to hear or that I hear when people actually have a little bit of NFT knowledge is what about all the energy consumption and the carbon footprint of crypto? I love this question. And I think it, when people asking this question, they come at it honestly, because, you know, whenever you're introduced to crypto, you hear about Bitcoin, Bitcoin being a proof of work network basically is an energy hog, always will be an energy hog, kind of is an environmental terror. I mean, I, I, you know, Bitcoin maxes out there will get mad at me and say it's the most secure way. And I get all that. But at the end of the day, they're right about Bitcoin. But very few NFTs are on Bitcoin. Most of them are, are extrapolate. That's it, most of the NFT market, as we've talked about, is on ETH or on Soul or on Flow. And these are these other blockchains. A lot of these blockchains like Soul and Flow and Tezos they're building these NFTs all on a proof of stake network. 
Um, and then Ether, which is right now is a proof in the work network, which I will admit does have an environmental footprint. And if you're someone that's going to tell me with, you know, full open eyes that I can't support an ETH project, you know, as long as it has that footprint, I understand. Personally, I have my own validator and all that set up. And the whole idea is that in the long run, the the energy usage of the Ethereum network within probably the next year is what I would say is going to go down about 99.99%. So the market where most of the NFTs are is going to come down dramatically. And we don't even have to wait for that. Right now, there's already some what's called layer two markets. So layer two, if you think about it, like Ethereum being in a house being the first layer, the first story, any layer two is basically built on top of it. And what the layer two does is it takes the transactions off that main Ethereum network, does them on basically a side network, puts all the proofs back on the main Ethereum network, basically use the main network for security, but does the calculations elsewhere. And because those calculations become elsewhere, there's already been some Ethereum layer twos or side change was kind of a different, but similar thing. And those have often been proof of stake instead of proof of work. So there's already before the whole Ethereum network moves over, there's ways to build proof of stake nfts today and then once the ethereum network moves over the environmental damage so to speak is not going to be the nft market it will be the crypto market as long as bitcoin's around which will probably be as long as my lifetime uh there'll always unfortunately probably be this environmental terror of bitcoin because that market's really ossified those developers really don't want to change things they're really nervous about upsetting the apple card because they've kind of got a good um but ethereum from the beginning has always wanted to move to a proof of stake network you know one thing i will hear people ask that are in the similar vein is well, if they can do that, why don't they just do it? You know, like, come on, why are they still hurting the planet? What's the point of doing all this? Well, first of all, Ethereum's worth like billions, tens of billions now, right? And no matter what you don't have, and it's not your tens of billions, but somebody's, they care, you know? And at the end of the day, you can't basically change the engine on a plane while it's flying, but that's what they're going to have to do with Ethereum. They're not going to like shut it down for a day like they did with Soul or something to reboot it, like... Sorry, soul fans, but I, yeah. I just, something like that's ridiculous. Like, that won't happen with Ethereum. Ethereum would like lose, it might, I'm being cocky, and it would lose like 90% of its value overnight if something like that happened. Because part of its value, just like Bitcoin, is based on it's been running for a while, it has security layer people trust. And these kind of upgrades are made after a lot of testing. So I have been about six months now, as I said, it, as part of the proof of stake network, that proof of stake network is working good right now. I've already seen as part of being that, that network that there's a lot of news going and talk about people in that community that are excited that they've already had put together what's called a test net. So a, a way to test that next network. So it's moving forward. Bottom line, Ethereum is getting there. Bottom line, within a year, most of the NFT market will use such a small amount of energy that this whole conversation will go away. And if you just want to wait a year to touch NFTs, or you'd rather just buy like Flow, and you know, NBA 2K ones or something, um, I'm sorry, 2K, oops, that's mental slip, <laughs> right? Top shots. Uh, then go for it. But I personally think that is that people are so connected to the tangible world that they can't understand the other side of it. So look at it this way. What does it cost in the art world? For these people to buy these artworks, a lot of them never leave like the the storage facility they're in. They just flip back and forth like we're doing the NFTs and they have to be in like air conditioning all day for decades, hundreds of years. And they've existed that long. What does that cost in an environmental cost? What does it cost to keep the art studios open? And I'm not talking about one. Yeah, I've seen like one you mint an NFT line and you've used more than one a year. But that's 10,000 pictures. That's like dozens of art studios. How much does it take to keep them open? 
basketball cards. We were just talking about that baseball cards. How much does it take to nail down the forest and turn that into a card and put the ink on it and ship it in a box to Walmart and all that? And you drive to Walmart and get like all this stuff in our world takes a carbon footprint. And if we could move more of that sense of needing, of belonging away from the physical world and towards that world that is online, then our environmental footprint will dramatically decrease. In fact, as far as I'm concerned, NFTs are, and, and, and stuff like it are maybe our best chance to not just drown in a sea of our own stuff at the end of the day, <laughs> especially in that gaming world. Again, the gamers don't like NFTs. A lot of it, I think, is because of mining. But you go into GameStop nowadays, it's just full of plastic junk because all the games are digital. There's, There's not a lot of reason, right, Jeremy, for the games to exist. So you go in there, it's just like toys. What's the environmental impact of like hundreds of stores in this country full with t- game toys and like little plastic dolls, right? Like, oh. yeah, to me, it's asinine to think that, you know, you take all of one industry and compare it to a small, minute sector of another. Well, of course, it's going to look bad. Well, it's because it's easy to visualize. People talk about, oh, Bitcoin using more energy in this country, uh, some like small European country or something. It's like, yeah, it sounds pretty bad. And Ethereum's using more in Iceland or something. It's like, yeah, it sounds kind of bad. And they're like, well, what is it actually doing? It's, well, it's containing tens of billions of dollars worth of value. And a lot of people don't see the value in that. But the value in that is that people have a place to put that value that's not the regular banking world, isn't these trusted institu- trusted institutions that all of us kind of learned that we can't trust back in 2008. And it's a place where people are creating a new universe that I bet a lot of these people will want to live in or their kids will want to live in. A lot of these doubters of today, they'll raise children who are already raising children who are mostly online. Mm-hmm. Who, who whose greatest pride is like their Fortnite emote collection that guess what costs money and is a mm-hmm. digital item that got bought like my NFTs, except they can't sell them. Oh, it's going to be trash in 10 years. Probably like my NFTs too, but <laughs> at yeah. least I'll have, at least I'll have them in my a wallet, liquid right? JPEGs. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? They'll be in my wallet. So, I mean, but. It, and given this time of year, you know, with all the wrapping and, and opening that we do, look at just how much package refuse there is. How many, you know, games have I gone to NFL, NBA, and I don't have the ticket stub. I would have loved for it to have been an NFT or a PO app and me actually have a digital record of it that took, you know, a kilobyte of space that I could have kept for 50 years and not had to worry about packing or moving with me. So it's also, I mean, what it's the saying, recycle, reduce, reuse. We can reduce the amount of paper waste, like you said, and everything else package waste. So I definitely don't think, you know, people look at, at every aspect of it. Um, well, I was going to say, because a lot of people can't imagine what it would be like to not have a world full of stuff. But go ahead, hit me with your question. But then, and then we probably got to wrap up. Probably got to wrap. I know it's story time. But Gary V just came out with that, you know, book NFT. And I was going to say, we talked about Pepsi, but Coca-Cola had a debut this week also. Um, Coca-Cola chose to do it on, you know, the Vive app and I think a different chain. And Gary V is actually using Immutable X for his NFTs. So are those both probably examples of the layer twos that you were mentioning earlier? That's exactly. Immutable X is an NFT compatible layer two. The problem with layer twos right now is that unless one layer two is going to take over the whole market, which is just impossible, so to speak. Um, And because of that, 
there's going to have to be some sort of wrapping mechanism that gets created on the base layer kind of sort of. So that way it can go back and forth. It doesn't have to be that complicated. I've read the, some of the discussion about it. It just needs to be extension of the current like ERC wrap that could then go between layers. But what I see happening, actually, like if I'm Coinbase right now, I'm picking a layer two. And I'm going around, I'm acquiring the greatest NFTs with my huge wallet of ETH of all that. And then the day I launch my site on my layer two is something like a billion, two billion dollars worth of NFTs. And suddenly that makes people want to come to my layer two. Maybe I pay fees or something if you bring them to my layer two. And you just trap all this value in a layer two that maybe you not control directly, but have a lot of influence over integrates directly with your platform. You got to pick. So it's not the guy, other guy picked or whatever. Maybe you don't use certain features that other layer twos are using because you just have market weight at that point. Like I could definitely see a player like that stepping in and enforcing a, a layer two setup. But right now we're doing everything in layer one. And the layer two movement is only going to happen if gas fees stay at a level where people have to. What's happening instead is gas fees goes up and the market pulls back and gas fees goes down and everyone starts minting again. And so it, there's going to have to be a bigger motivation to get people off the layer one. Right now, everyone trusts layer one Ethereum and knows how to mm -hmm. use it. These wallets like MetaMask will have to get around and do a lot of the UX concerns that are related to moving to a layer two. So we're not there yet. And I wouldn't want to pick a layer two to be the winner yet. But Immutable X looks interesting. I was looking at their stuff, and there's some other ones that support NFTs that look interesting. So we'll have to see where that market goes. Let's go ahead and wrap it up. Or no, you're going to tell you my story. So let's go ahead. You're going to read my story. Mm -hmm. I'm really excited about this one. I've had this one in my head for a while, and I'm excited about you reading it because Crypto Dads was something you got me into. So next up, my Crypto Dad story. And will you take it away, Jeremy? Let's get it. I love my kids, but man, it's hard to be a parent in the 21st century. It is hard to be a mom, but it's hard to be a dad too. I feel like being a mom was always hard, but just underappreciated. Someone's always had to raise the generations who came before us, and when so many cultures dump childcare traditionally on the mom side of the pool, it means that it's always been hard being a mom. But for my generation, there's a new wrinkle to it all. Now it's hard to be a dad too. See, my dad, my father-in-law, heck, most boomer dads I talk to, they just don't get it anymore. They never will get it. Their experiences were so vastly different. The cultural demands on them were just so, so different. The demands they had on themselves were so different. It had always been a relative standard. And in modern households, where both the parents work, somewhere along the way, the practicality of old standards have fallen away, leaving behind one of the biggest generational gaps in maybe any generation of humanity. The end result is that the modern dads don't have many guideposts on their own personal journeys. I remember before we got pregnant, I tried to be prepared, to be proactive. I went around and asked what sort of advice the boomer dads had for me. Frankly, I didn't just ask boomers. I asked every single dad I could get a hold of what kind of advice he had for me. But after a while, a common thread was coming together. You see, all of the men I asked above a certain age, in that boomer category, 
Well, they had about the same advice to say. Watch out for the crap diapers. Get ready for some bad poo diapers. You will have to change was their chorus. That was their cross to bear. The crap was going to smell and be messy. And as a dad, eventually you are going to have to deal with it, they warned. Just be ready for the poo diapers was always their warning. Some would even share particularly smelly experiences from their own past. But here I am, a couple years in, and I have to say poo that is in the diaper and not smeared on the bed or smeared on the walls or somewhere else it isn't supposed to be isn't really that bad. I'll take that bad poo diaper all day over poo my toddler pulled out of his diaper and smeared somewhere else. And even that experience wouldn't register on my top 10 of the hardest parts of being a dad in an era where there is no longer some sort of threshold where certain magical problems turn into mom problems. I wish I would have been warned about the rest of it, even though I do love my kids. I'll never forget the time when my father-in-law was so worried that my wife was going out of town and that I would be alone with the kids. How can he manage by himself, he thought out loud as he tried to convince my mother-in-law to come help me. He didn't realize that in my wife's busy career, there were some nights, even when she was there, that I was alone with the kids because she had just checked out from a hard day, like he had done so often, thanks to the dad expectations of his generations that let that be a regular thing for him. He never experienced that, just like so many men who want to pretend that taking care of their kids is the equivalent to babysitting instead of doing the heavy lifting that is parenting. They lived in a different world than I do. I mean, I know some dads who basically get away with doing a boomer level of childcare in my generation, but it's pretty rare. Hollywood has done us a disservice with its norms that are stuck in a distant past. To be a good dad today, it's not just about throwing footballs. It's not just about showing up to the play on time. It is crazy that we've lived through almost every family moving to a two-income household, but our entire life, that Hallmark movie just talks about these guys being good dads if they threw a football or if they showed up to a play. And the stupid protagonist in the movie, the guy we were supposed to be rooting for, would always have to be hustling through the plot just to hit these minimums. Even with all the warning in the world, the hero of the story would barely make it to the play on time. Maybe he changed a poo diaper too off camera. I guess it was implied. But he never really did any of the lifting of childcare, and the real protagonist who did was never recognized. That is the culture we were raised in. I've heard people say that the bar for dads is on the floor, and we have all heard of that deadbeat dad who keeps the bar low, or we've seen these movies that keep the bar low. But so often in life, the mean doesn't matter as much as the median. And for most dads I know of, in my generation, the advice from the moms who came before us is a hell of a lot more helpful than the advice of the boomer dads, who are obviously never expected to do much more than keep the bills paid. Those dads just can't understand it. They just can't relate. That is why their advice is always about them poo diapers. That was the edge case of their own personal experience. Yet there are some days I would do just about anything to have to change a poo diaper instead of worrying about if my son's fever is too high or how he looks going to school or worried about what kind of nutritional food he's going to eat that night. Crap in the diaper? 
That's the easy part of being a parent from what I have lived through. It is frustrating because it really means you can't even talk with those older guys. They don't understand what it is to be under the pressure trying to find answer to today's questions. Your boomer boss dad doesn't understand why you need time to take off for your kid's follow-up appointment. He never had to do that. He doesn't get why you had to take PTO time again because this kid was sick again twice in a year. I mean, didn't he meet your wife at the Christmas party? Your experience is foreign to him. Thank God football exists, not so I have something to throw to make me a good dad, but so I have a talking point that allows me to have actual conversations with the boomer dads in my life, because we definitely don't see eye to eye on parenting, that's for sure. I actually got on the internet trying to find better advice, since the older men around me in my life don't have any good answers. I went diving into female spaces online, on mom blogs, and social media networks like Pinterest, just to try to get some answers. And all I got out of it is, 21st century moms have it even worse. Not only do they have the same pressures that I deal with, but they also have the crushing expectations that generations of moms, who are mostly dedicated to just this task, did it much better than them. Or even worse, how the mom down the street seems to do it better from the view of her social media profile, despite her having a job and a social life. It seems we are all caught in a 21st century parenting rat race and no one makes it out unscathed. There are moments, just so many moments that are great. You love your kids, so you never regret jumping into the role of being a 21st century dad on such bad advice. But it does leave these lingering feelings whenever you have these conversations with people who came from a different generation, that parenting's gotten harder or that maybe you missed a shortcut somewhere. But you know, at the end of the day, humanity didn't evolve into a new animal in a few decades. Our way of life did. And we've never sat down and had the hard conversations necessary to really bridge that gap. Till next time. That was a good story, Jared. Thank you very much. I uh, I have to say, I think, I know I write them, but it's kind of lame, but that's probably my favorite one so far. So it really meant a lot for, you, for me to have you read it. So thank you very much. Oh, yeah. As dads, it's definitely relatable, and I, I took pride in that one. So it's it's our first, or my first NFT, so it'll always be the OG for me. There we go. We'll, we'll be back with some more in the future. Uh, if you can find me on Twitter, at PoofyHairGuy. You can yeah. find him on Twitter. At JaredDake. And uh, we'll be talking to you all next week. For now, you all have a good one and have a happy and safe holidays.